0: Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast, I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined today by the legendary Richard Croft, Executive Chairman, M7 Real Estate. Richard, fantastic to see you, looking so well. Thank you for coming in and um, belated congratulations on, on your recent deal. With Oxford Properties. I'm fantastic to, to see you here today. Let's start, let's get straight in there. You've been at the top of your game for the last three decades. You, you know, you've, you've seen countless cycles, you've helped established asset classes, and, and you're a very prominent advocate for innovation and technology, all, all, of, all of which we'll come on to. But tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are now. Give us a little tidbit of highlight over the last few years. Um, that was the
1: kindest introduction anybody's ever given me. I'm going to adopt the word legend more regularly in my introductions of myself, so thank you. So the highlights of the last 30 years, my God, there have been so many. And by the way, you, you made me sound really old there. I just want to point out that I'm 52, and um, so I haven't really been at the top of my game for 30 years more. 15 or 20, I had a very long apprenticeship working for a guy called John Sims. So I am—I um, I got involved in real estate in 1990. And I'll give you a tiny little background to sort of my life before then. So I left school in 1987 with some A-levels. And uh, my mom and dad gave me some money to go traveling to try and Broaden my experiences of the world. And it was
0: this uh, a gap year? or It a... would have
1: been a gap year. It didn't actually end up as a gap year, and I'll explain why. So there's
0: no YouTube video of you on the, the internet? It was in 1987.
1: There was no YouTube. There was no video phones. Thank Christ. Probably uh, probably just as well, right? I, honestly, one of the things that I'm <laughs> most grateful for is <laughs> that my 20s
0: and early 30s... There was no social media. There was no social media. No, well, I, your I, Twitter feed from 1987, would a bit of cracker. It's a cracker now. But ah. It, it would have
1: been, <laughs> been, been different. I mean, I stopped posting, posting on Facebook a long time ago because I suddenly realized it was just me at parties around the place and it's probably not a good look. So, no, I'm, I'm very grateful that social media didn't exist in the 1990s. Anyway, 1987, I, I went traveling. Well, at least I intended to go traveling. So I, mom and dad gave me a little bit of money and I went interrailing initially, for those of you who remember, interrailing. And I interrolled for about three days, and I stayed in a couple of hostels, and I stayed in a genuinely woeful campsite, sort of with mosquitoes near a pond. It was horrific, and I decided very quickly that sort of hostels and campsites weren't really for me. So I took what was left of my money and I checked myself into a very nice hotel for three weeks, and my gap year got condensed into a three-week absolute ball, and I came home, um, and I. Mum was bit surprised to I me. Mean, there's no mobile phones, so they didn't know that I was coming home. I came home a lot earlier than planned, right. and I asked them whether there was any more money, and they looked at me like I was simple, which I suppose I was. And they said no. And I had a year before I was due to go to university, so I, I, I applied for a job as a postboy for a company called EDNF Man, which is now the Man Group, one of the world's largest hedge funds. And I, I, I got the job, actually. And I was a post boy for, I don't know, two or three hours until somebody from personnel, there was no HR department in those days, came downstairs and said, um, you went to a public school? And I went, yeah. They said, and you've got A-levels? And I went, yeah. They said, what are you doing in the post room? And I said, well, that was the job that I was in the newspaper. I applied for it. And they said, well, you don't do that. Come on, sir." So I got a 50% pay rise my three hours into my career. <laughs> from 3,000 pounds to 4,500 pounds a year, and I became a, a back office clerk for one of the trading desks. Anyway, long story short, I became a trader. I never went to university because by the time I was going to university, I was earning much more money than I had
0: envisaged. But you've got to you use to stay in nice hotels with that. Plan, no, so. no, I wasn't
1: staying in nice hotels. I was actually living in a flat in <laughs> Walthamstow,
0: all places. <before. laughs> oh, no, I meant on the, on the gap
1: year. I on the gap year, but I mean, no. So
0: I, anyway, I, I,
1: I never went to university, and I, and I worked for this, well, we were a futures trader. I got involved as a very junior analyst in a thing called the Mint Investment Management Company. And I was part of a team that helped acquire a group called Adam Harding and Lewick became AHL. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 1990, I'm sure you remember, the world imploded in itself. I found myself out of work and I was I'd had a bit of money and I was now going to go and do my gap year with a bit of money. Anyway, I met a guy called John Sims who ran a property company called Industrial Ownership. And I, uh, in fact, he was married to my sister. And I was slagging off the real estate industry because I'd been involved kind of in the attempt to create a property futures contract. And I was slagging off the real estate industry about how unprofessional it was, how everything was done over lunch. By the way, something that I I grew to love later. But, you know, how how could there be a derivative market when the physical market was so disorganized? And he said, well, why don't you come and work for me for a few months and Mm. learn about real estate? I thought, well, I've got no harm. Delay my travel. Anyway, I ended up working for him for nearly 15 years and I built his international business, and that business became very big. And that became IO, became Property Fund Management PLC. That got taken over by Teasland. Teasland got taken over by Scarborough. Scarborough got taken over by uh, Van, Ad. Van Ad got taken over by Cromwell. So that business, I built that international business in the late 90s, early noughties. Anyway, John decided to sell the business to Teasland. To say that John and I didn't see eye to eye on that particular decision would be an understatement. And even though I had you know, a huge admirer of him, he and I had a bit of a falling out. So I left and I took some of my team with me and we set up a business called Haverton, which I set up with a guy called Bill Sexton. You've probably come across, runs Trimont these days, legend yeah, of guy, yeah. Doug Gardner, who was the ex-chairman, chief executive of Brixton, a guy called Andrew Yates, who worked with me at I.O. He was the CFO and a wonderful human being called Tacker de Groot, who at the time ran a property company called called Turnup, And he became chief executive of Faris Ned later. Anyway, we set up this business Halberton. We had the wildest ride, 2005 through 2007. The business was hugely successful, and we invested in industrial, and we were way ahead of our time. And 2005, sorry, 2007, the business was bought by an Australian group called GPT, General Property Trust. Because they'd had a joint venture with Babcock and Brown, and Babcock and Brown had backed us originally. Anyway, uh, that went very well for about a minute after they bought our business, the global financial crisis. It was hit. just
0: before, but it was... It,
1: so we sold in July 2007,
0: yeah. So, so time, I mean, yeah. So yeah, it's a genius. So you've, so you've got timings, everything tattooed on your chest. I mean, the yeah. Listeners can't see that, but it's there. It's not. Because uh, <laughs> it wasn't a deliberate strategy, <laughs> and then I completely, I'm going
1: to swear, I completely fucked up everything after that. Anyway, I mean two to, to do things. One, it became very apparent that GPT's view of the future and my view of the future weren't aligned. And by the way, they were good people.
0: In what um, way? What 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 in what when you when there was what was
1: So they were a proper institution, um, you know, and very staid. We were a young, dynamic, aggressive, entrepreneurial business run by kids in their, 30, you know, I was only 38 at the time, 37, you know, we were still kids, right? Learning things. We'd had, I'd had a 17 year career that had been stellar. I'd never put a foot wrong. I mean, I thought it's because I was... So a what gym.
0: sorts of things, so, so and what sorts of things didn't they like? Well, give me an example.
1: Uh, I'm going to try.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: I'll try and explain this. Sort of, I'd had, I thought...
0: Because this 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 you know th- this scenario that you talk is it, quite commonplace in real estate because th- there's there has always been that weird juxtaposition between people like you that are out and out entrepreneurs that have got you know aggressive DNA that can smell a deal a mile off but as and I've seen this in the you know, sixteen years that I've been around that the world's moved a lot in in that decade and a half. From the landscape of 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 the John Ripblats and the entrepreneurs of this world to where we are now, where institutional capital rules. Okay, well, I'll go back to what I was saying.
1: Saying, you know, when we started, so when the relationship with GPT bought our business. Mm. No, I had an arrogance about me that I, I, I would like to think I don't have anymore, because I'd had a 17 year career, which basically everything I'd done had gone well, and I assumed that was me. It turns out it was just the market going from 1990 to 2007. And actually, almost everybody had a good career between 1990
0: and 2000. Well, it's the same thing of, of industrial over the last few years, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And we'll come <laughs> on to that. You could um, argue.
1: But and what I discovered in you know as things went wrong is actually I, I wasn't nearly as clever as I thought I was. But GPT had a view on the world as just how things should be done. And it differed from us. So we were chased down the deal at any cost. They were very much analysis before doing anything. You know, but they would power, you know, and this isn't a criticism, but, you know, you you know, the expression paralysis by analysis, I think it applied to them. But the thing is, I didn't adapt and my team didn't adapt very well to being corporate citizens, which we should have done. Mm. You know, they'd bought the business, it was their business, and it was up to us to adapt to them, not the other way around. And we were too young and arrogant, and we assumed that they should adapt to to us. So
0: that was a lesson that I learned. So what would your advice be to to other entrepreneurs that find themselves in that situation be very
1: careful who you sell your business to and i'll come on to that in in a second but it didn't help that the global financial crisis happened at the same time so they reverted to type so had the global financial crisis not happened they might have let us continue being what we were because it was hugely successful
0: yeah the fact is brixham would probably be one of the country's biggest reads as well wouldn't it yeah so that's the point but the the
1: it didn't the global financial crisis did happen, and so they reverted to type, and we were facing, I think, probably the realization we weren't as clever as we thought we were, mm. all at the same time, which made for an un, very, very unhealthy cocktail. I mean, I will tell you a story that, that sort of underlines where you know I knew very quickly, after doing the deal with them, I probably had made a mistake. You know, not long after they bought the business, I got summoned to Australia to undertake diversity training. Now. I think diversity training is not a bad thing at all. But but the way that it was done is, you know, I got phoned up one day. They said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm running a business. I'm quite busy. So I said, I'd like you to come to, you know, as one of our top executives, do diversity training. And I, I got called in for, you know, basically three days of learning, you know, being asked to promote certain activities in the workplace. And, you know, my view, and this, as I stress, is a personal view, is that providing everything is legal, it should be tolerated. You know, I mean, I would like to think we have a very tolerant workplace. We did at Haviton, we certainly do at M7. We are hugely gender diversified. We're hugely nationality diversified. I don't like the idea of bias in any direction, one way or or the other. You know, I, yeah. don't, I, I don't like bias at all, but they were very pro-bias. I don't and again, for all the right reasons. And I was coming at it from an angle of a 37, 38-year-old man who thought he was very clever. And it sort of, and so... Everything they did irritated me and pretty much everything I did irritated them. And, you know, they were good people. And, you know, I regret bitterly that, you know, the relationship with them didn't end slightly better than it did. I ended up getting fired, by the way. Um, uh, You know, not fired for misconduct or anything. They just asked me to leave. And so, but, I, you know, it taught me a lot. And the whole of M7 is based on the lessons that I learned during the 12 months of the global financial crisis. So, you know, lots of things that we did differently. So when we started M7, so I'm, I'm sure you know, but M7 was founded by myself and basically the majority of the senior management at GPT Haviland So when I left, most of the senior management left with me, they decided that, you know, we wanted to start again. We set up M7 with no income, no business plan, um, if you ever get an opportunity to do that, don't take it. It's a very stressful period of your life. <laughs> um, and we, we had six months on gardening leave in which we could write the rule book for our new business. So came out of that, and I'm sure you know, we have a business called Coyote, which is led by a wonderful, brilliantly talented man called Ollie Farragher. And one of the big takeaways from 2007 was how quickly you can lose control of your data. And if you lose control of your data, you don't make good decisions. So, you know, we, we built mm. this software system called Coyote, which allowed us to have much better data management than anybody else. We set up a team with 18 people and no income. So, we had an in house lawyer, we had an in house debt team. And again, one of the big takeaways from the global financial crisis was How did you
0: fund all this?
1: Uh, I sold my house, sold everything I earned other people sold it, you know, we basically, our own money, we, we did proper, we, I mean, i lived in rented accommodation, I I lost most of my money during the global financial crisis, and what money I didn't lose, we put into the business. I, mostly because, I mean, again, if I was honest, I wasn't wildly employable in 2008, I don't think my reputation was that good in 2008, because, you know, the end of GPT Hamilton hadn't been fantastic, and so, you know, we had to start again. But I innately believe that we were you know the team was good at what we did. We just got caught out, we were overgeared in two thousand and seven, we'd screwed up our hedging, and it was the hedging that caused the most problems. So when we set up m seven I say we, we we sort of we set up this full platform and the reason for that we all by the way, it was a cooperative, everybody had equity, nobody got paid for a while. But we took the view that with all those small businesses starting up in two thousand and eight, if we were a team of eighteen people, we would look like we had substance. Now, yeah, I mean, substance of straw, to be honest, but, you know, we had people, and we had infrastructure, and we were lucky. Optics oh,
0: are everything. I mean, particularly in property. Yeah. I mean, I, I get this a lot, where, where people come to me, oh, yeah, Blackstock, you must be a lot bigger than you are, because we have such amazing guests on the podcast, and, 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 and all... You, you know that i turn up to the opening of an envelope, quite oh, literally, I'm, well, no, I'm famed for that. It's, so. it's been duly noted by the the Blackstock events team, who are... Who are, who are so, literally. you have
1: a uh, an envelope opening soon, I'm, I'm there, I'll even bring a bottle. Downing Street, where you can bring your own booze
0: party. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I need to. Well, we're, we're rescheduling my 40th birthday party at the minute. So if, if you've got, if there's a spare M7 yacht, we can borrow. There is
1: no spare M7. yacht. There has never been an M7. I've, 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 I've reported in the Times we rented one once for Mebbin, but there is no M7 yacht. Okay. But yeah. I'm very happy to bring some
0: champagne <laughs> or any other wine that you've got. Duly like. noted, Richard. So let's whiz through the last, well, the last 14 years and since. since since the GFC, the rise of M7 to to I suppose where you got to last year with Oxford, uh, with Oxford, sorry, sold again to an institution. I mean, let's be frank. What was the key to not screwing it up with M7? What was the key to to success there from from those depths of rules? We, we 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 we. So if I compare the two
1: businesses, Haverton M7, Haverton was sort of like a pirate ship. I mean, it was a sort of you know when Bill and I first sort of had the idea to start the business and we got everybody else involved. I was very angry with my boss. He was pretty angry with his boss. And so it was started out of, you know, a couple of rebellious pirates who sort of, we can go and build a business better than anybody else. And for a couple of years, it was hugely successful, but it was built on energy and energy alone. Hmm. You know, we didn't build a lot of deep foundations and we had a lot of fun. Okay, I mean, please don't get me wrong. It was a, you know, the 2005, 2007 era was a hoot. 2007, 2009 was horrific, but 2005, 2007 was a hoot. When we built M7, we'd learned all the lessons. So you learn far more. And, you know, any advice I would give any budding entrepreneur is you learn far more from your failure than you do from your success. Because success goes to your head. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how self-aware you think you are. If you keep winning things, you just begin to think it's you. Instead of realizing that, more often than not, it's just the market or it's just, you know, luck or, you know, there's lots of things that... Contribute. When you fail, and fuck me, did I fail during 2007, 2009, you learn about yourself. You learn about the things you're not very good at. And then you can do two things with that. You can either go and run a pub, which I very nearly did and thought, you know, I think my career's ended here. Or you can go, actually, I'm going to try and learn from that. I'm going to try and do things better. And, you know, I was very lucky. You know, the, the the team that had been my partners and have been my partners all the way through. Are very good people and we all wanted to learn together so we built proper foundations the business so you know m7 is now nearly 14 years old because it's got foundations and it's grown and it's been through an awful lot of things but we we put proper systems in place we put proper infrastructure in place and also when we got the odd hit and we had a few hits we just accepted them and managed them and you know there was always a plan so the the primary difference between the two businesses is Halberton was a freewheeling, energetic ball of chaos to a degree. I mean, so much fun. And we did a lot of good stuff. And, you know, I learned a lot from it. Whereas M7, despite the fact it's been a lot of fun, and I think we are well known for having had quite a lot of fun, we did build it on a very firm foundation.
0: And well, what was the genesis of the deal of Oxford then?
1: 2019, I this sort of the, my, the chief executive of M7 is a guy called David Apple, who's been worked with me for 16, 17 years, um, maybe longer actually. He was at IO with me actually, albeit very briefly. Came to Halverton with me, and obviously came M7. He'd been the CIO for five years, and you know by 2019 it was very clear. He's seven years younger than I am. That he needed to be the boss. I mean, you know, he's an incredible investor. He's an incredible manager of people. He's a very, very, massively impressive human. And, you know, my view is also every generation is a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit quicker than the previous one. So, you know, him becoming chief executive was something that we'd been working towards anyway. Yeah, I had sort of reached the point where the role of chief executive of M7 had become such a big job. You know, know, it was a big business, and we were, you know, I was... I think in 2019 I spent 62 nights asleep on planes. I mean, it's just sort of not a lifestyle that I wanted to continue yeah. quite the same mm-hmm. way.
0: about 20 countries, right mean, ridiculous now, isn't
1: it? Yeah, well, we were operating in 15 countries in Europe, but then we had Hong Kong. We were spent a lot of time in Asia, spending a lot of time in um, in America, in the Middle East. Anyway, I kind of made myself. I didn't I did make myself chairman. David became the chief executive, and we basically split the, the roles. The pandemic meant that I remained the de facto CEO, even though David was the CEO. I ran much more of the business than I intended during 2020, working with David to guide us through the pandemic. And I sort of came to the conclusion at the end of 2020 that I didn't actually want, and neither did my partners, the responsibility of 250 people in the same way that we we, we had. And we were approached all the time to people, would you sell the business? And we'd been talking on and off to a number of groups over till three years, and I, I, and I met. Who else were you talking to? And that I'm, you'll have to ask East Hill who were mandated. But you know, we, we, we had a lot of conversations with American private equity groups, if I leave it at that. All of whom I like, and all of whom we might have done deals with in different circumstances. I met Joe McNamara and David Madison at a breakfast uh, in October, 2020, to talk about things we could do together. And somewhere during that hour's breakfast, I had a Damascus moment where it became utterly apparent to me that Oxford were going to be the best partner we could ever wish for. Um, and let me explain why that's the case. Oxford has great big global ambitions and huge balance sheet, but it was a bit light on people. We had this huge infrastructure... But we'd sort of become like a shark. And I think one of the most dangerous places that any business can be like ours is when you are, you know, if you took our business, we have a flaw in our business model, which is everything we buy, we buy it to sell. So if you're an asset manager, we're not keeping anything long term. We buy it, we add value to it, we sell it, mm. which means it's like a shark. You've got to keep feeding yourself and what goes in. And that's
0: slightly counter to how a business like Oxford is seen.
1: Precisely. So- I'm looking at employing 250 people in however many offices we have, and we've got to keep feeding the machine. And because of the amount of liquidity that was becoming apparent to me is going to be flooded into the world, the opportunistic business that we had so benefited from from the last 10 years is going to change. And also what I was hearing from investors is that I think, you know, you'll, you'll have the stats, but I think it's something that's extraordinary. Like $9 in every 10 is raised by literally 10% of managers, which is Blackstone, Starwood, Cerberus, Lone Star, you know, the beasts. And then everybody else is fighting for the other $10, right? Yeah. And I can see what's going to happen is you're going to have the Bearmouths, love that word, and the niche players and everything in between. You know, if you're a mid-market player, that's, that's not a great place to be. And so on top of the pandemic, yeah, I mean, which, which, which we came through very well, on top of the pandemic, I started to thought actually what I'd like to do is i you know, I want this platform to be protected forever and I want it to join the Premier League. And I could join the Premier League by either becoming part of one of the big American private equity groups, because they were interested. You know, obviously we've had all the joint ventures for Starwood, Blackstone, et cetera. You know, we were a well-regarded company. Or we could do a deal with somebody like Oxford and become the effective fund management arm, for one better term, for a business like that backed by their capital, and that would catapult us into the Premier League so that we could then compete genuinely when we're out raising funds with the big boys. And, you know, the the year that we've been owned or part owned by them, we exchanged over a year ago, but actually only completed in September. To be honest, has been fantastic. You know, I have a lot of time for everybody I've met from Oxford. It's a very different relationship to the GBT1A, because I'm older and, and I've now understood how to be a corporate citizen. So you know, I've ended up going from being a sort of, you know, a position of being a slightly benign dictator—not quite a dictator, but you uh, know—but you know, I had a lot of control over what I did to now being a corporate citizen. But Oxford have been very kind, um, have been very supportive, and are just a great business to be involved with. So I mean, I'm a year into this, and I feel better about this decision than I did a year ago. It's been—it's been really, been really good. Hmm.
0: So, I mean, in terms of the market that that you're in, how do you see that going? Because uh, some would say it's a bit too hot. Some would say that there's... Which market do you think I'm in? uh, Well, I mean, I I suppose the, the... well, I mean, well, you're in a few markets, aren't you? <laughs> so, so let's... So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking more, I guess, across commercial property. But, I mean, let's focus on, on, on industrial offices. So, I mean, okay, so,
1: so, so let's break it up. So break it, it down. It, it break it down into what we do. So industrial. Yeah, industrial. If you told me 2009...
0: That there'd be when, rental growth at industrial.
1: No, I, I predicted that kind of. I mean, I'm just... That's, I mean, that's because rent's were really low. Now, if you told me in 2009 when I was wandering around struggling to get anybody to like the idea of buying industrial, because, you know, that was my bag at the time, that yields industrial yields in London would be tighter than Bond Street in 13 years' time. I literally would have, you know, I'd have found 911, 9-1, wrong country, 999, But, you know, I would have sought psychiatric help for you. But yet industrial yields are tighter than Bond Street now in London. So... Th- the change in industrial has been dramatic. Now people have said to me, "Well, you're a great industrial investor. Am I hell?" Yeah, we bought really well. But the reality is, is the absolute genius of industrial investor is John Gray. So you know, when M7 set up, uh, or rather Blackstone set up with M7's help, what has now become Marway, they came to us and said, "We'll buy a whole load of your industrial," which we had a lot. And then we'll make you the joint venture asset manager, etc., until we internalise it. But you know, we bought it all at eleven or 12s and sold at six percent yields. Genuinely high fiving each other, you know, sending invitations to parties, and then we've watched it come into threes, fours, rents, quadruple. You know, the fact is, that we did very well out of it, right? And we've done very well out of you know Dutch offices. We've done very well out of retail warehouse, and we've called a lot of things right. But you know, the truth is, on industrial. Um, we probably sold a bit too early. However, one of the lessons that I learned during the global financial crisis, we forgot to sell in 2007 when we had an opportunity. And so when I got the opportunity to sell stuff in 2017, having made more money than we said we would to our investors, that didn't seem like a bad plan. And by the way, I'd, I'd still make the same decision again. But if I look at an investor like John Gray, or I look at, you know, the investors like Barry Sternick and Jeff Dishner at Starwood, who are long-term investors and you know, there's a reason why they're wildly more successful than I am out or M7 is, you know, we, we've always been reactive and they've taken long term
0: views. But uh, is a lot of capital reactive now? Um, Are people too reactive? Uh, of pri- I mean, is, is the pricing that we're seeing. All right, but, but okay, of, okay a, but a, vi- is, is, a, is it a victim of dumb money coming in and no. pushing it up?
1: So, I mean, this is a pop fact, which I think is true, but I, you, know, you will have to verify it. It is over 20% of all of the world's dollars ever created have been created in the last 18 months, okay? So capital has to go somewhere. We've got inflation, but 0% interest rates really around the world. I mean, Treasury yields in America yesterday hit 1.8 for a period of time, but that's 10-year money, okay? 1.8. Fixed income is dead. Cash is deflationary, but there's more cash than there's ever been. So the asset economy is going to continue to do well. So I don't think it's dumb money. And real estate is an inflation hedge. And it's naturally, there's a natural cap. It's there. only
0: an inflation hedge if rent's going up. The retail, people said, it was an inflation hedge. And look how that's worked out.
1: OK. But if you took any one subsector of any one industry and said, well, that's performed poorly, that's probably true. But if you take real estate as a whole, real estate as a whole has performed very well over the last 15 years. I mean, shopping centers, not so much. But student housing is that number? Yeah, yeah, fair point. Residential that. was that number? Industrial, I think we know the answer to that. Retail warehousing, my big thing, has done phenomenally over the last two or three years.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I mean that that's often the the sort of the the the, the ugly sister of of the real estate world. The, the... No,
1: retail warehousing for a long time was not the ugly sister. It was it was one of the beautiful. Things, but it became an ugly sister when retail started going out of fashion in two thousand and seventeen. Retail warehousing started drifting behind it, and during the pandemic, it got a bit of a kicking. As you know, we decided to buy loads at that point because I was looking at markets and thinking industrial booming, but retail warehousing fascinated me. I have always liked retail warehousing, but fascinated me for two reasons. Because I'm going to ask you to just play a little game with me. Yeah, yeah. Say retail warehousing. Just say the expression. Retail warehousing. Now don't say retail.
0: Warehousing. Warehousing.
1: Okay. It's a warehouse. Physically, you go to a retail warehouse, it's a steel portal frame on a concrete floor or you know, it's got a skin. It's a warehouse.
0: So This is like the game you play when you say landlord and tenant and you you take out land and you take out ten and you're left with Lord and Ant. Not
1: quite like that, no, because I don't, <laughs> that, 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 that game might be
0: fun, but it doesn't make any sense. Whereas, you know, I'm making
1: the point that physically this stuff is a warehouse, right? It, no, that's a good point. It's a warehouse. And if you believe in click and collect, then obviously half store, half warehouse was going to be a type of real estate that's very much needed. So Next could occupy a big logistics facility in Daventry and somebody would trade that for three and a half percent. They could own a retail warehouse or be a tenant in a retail warehouse, mm-hmm. In Coventry, and somebody'd pay nine for that. That made no sense. Because still some of a warehouse, and if you read the report and accounts, the retail warehouse element of their estate's done very well. Click and collect and uh, and stores and easy car parking. And if you want genuine urban infill warehousing, retail warehouse parks are much better than industrial estates. And rents had come down a lot because people had been confusing retailing with retail warehousing. But if I asked you B and M, you know, that's a successful business, the range. Home bargains, these are hugely successful operators. They're not struggling. So the occupier base of retail warehouses has never been stronger, bizarrely. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing, is the supply is reducing because occasionally lodges or somebody comes along and just buys a site or, you know, Amazon and just turns it into something else. And nobody is ever going to give you a planning consent from a retail warehouse ever again because single-story buildings, 30% site cover, urban infill. You know, so inefficient, it is laughable from a land use point of view. And also planners believe they killed the town centers. They didn't, but that's another story.
0: Mm.
1: So you've got reducing supply, increasing demand, and you could buy the stuff at 8% when industrial was four or five. Why would you not fill? we did fill our builds. And by the way, everybody else has joined us in that particular crusade. But I mean, that was a a decision that I look at and go, that was a good one. And we bought quite a lot of retail warehousing and we hope to buy a bit more. Mm. My big plan for 2022, well, big plan, one of the plans, is regional offices. And I get laughed. I, got, I literally got hissed. I, I, I gave a speech about how I thought regional offices were going to really do well in the next three or four years. And you know, not quite hissing, but a lot of people going, well,
0: and "What are um, idiot. With regional offices, where are you starting to, to price in the ESG risk and, and the, the obsolescence risk? How is that? Because this is, it is quite an emerging concept we don't yet have a of a proper price for carbon how are you thinking about that and over what i mean because no,
1: that, that is a de- that's a developing theme and I, I don't have a straight answer to that so it's not because i'm trying to be avoiding it's because you know yeah. that's going to evolve but let me give you a concept okay communication and work from home are linked so suddenly we have technology that allows us to communicate far more than we ever did from zoom through to Laptops to our iPhones, to our iPads, or for those people who use um, Android.
0: Well, yeah, technology. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got a Rage in our office that, that, we've, that we've popped up this but, morning. okay.
1: So that has enabled people to work anywhere. Now, mm. I've been working anywhere for 15 years, or well, 20 years. You know, I've been working on the run, so, and technology's yeah. got better and better and better. But this is what the pandemic has done, in my opinion. The pandemic has gone, you don't need to commute the way you used to. And so the mass transit long-distance commute is at risk. This idea that the people are going to work from home, I'm sorry, I don't buy. Them. And, you know, I mean, even people with big homes, children, you know, but if you're working in your bedroom, you're working in your dining room, it doesn't work. It's it's not, you could work there half a day a week, a week, you know, sort of a day a week, but you can't work there. But do people want a mass transit commute? No. Do people want to work near home in shared space? Absolutely they do. And I've got lots of empirical evidence around this. So do I believe that what's going to happen is we're going to end up using more space as a result of the pandemic? Probably. London and the big cities will remain obviously dominant. But what's going to happen? I mean, so take me, I spend two days a week in London having lots of meetings, coming and doing podcasts with beautiful people like yourself. But I actually have an office in Suffolk. We have 16 people work there and it's where my day-to-day job is. And, you know, I can do Zoom calls. People come to me and there's lots of meetings that can take place. You've got the internet now, though. not We do have the internet in Suffolk, yeah. Uh, we got it last year. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, we've got some fiber internet. I, so, but everything is possible now because of the because of technology. And what's going to happen is I can see people, particularly in executive jobs, ending up with two offices. One in London, where they come day or two a week for lots of meetings. And, so, you know, the restaurants are here are better and there's lots of reasons to come to London. But much of their week can be somewhere else. They can still do the same job, Mm. but the need for human interaction, and trust me, that is a primeval need. That's, you know, you just need to be with people. You know, and I spent a lot of time sitting in a study on my own for months and months and months, even behind Zoom, I nearly went mad. And, And I'm not alone, you know, mental health has suffered in the pandemic more than anything else, or maybe not more than anything else, but, you know, so people need to be together. But do they want to commute an hour and a half, two hours into London on a crowded train? No. Will they do it a couple of times a week? Yes. But will they club together and sort of start having offices locally? And do I think businesses will move to a hub-and-spoke model over the next five years? Yeah, yeah, I do. And yet, here's the thing about regional offices, right? A lot of regional offices are 10, 15, 20 pounds a square foot. Take that for, as a thought. Because of the cost of materials and cost of land, nobody can afford to build any new regional offices. And also, in the last 10 years...
0: Because of permitted development. I guess it right. depends what, what you mean, because, I mean, there's been pretty major schemes in, in Birmingham and, and Manchester, but I guess you're talking slightly more peripheral, right? Not not.
1: No, sitting... no, I'm also talking in Birmingham Manchester, but okay. But in the last two years, with the cost of materials going up as much as they have, labour going up as much as it has, the value of land going, you know, you're not going to see the development that you have had. You, you just can't, or at least rents will have to be a lot higher. Yeah. But also take sort of some of the market towns, rents at 10, 15, 20 pounds. But even in the big cities like Birmingham, Manchester, which by the way, I'm big, big fans of, I think they'll perform well. But in the market towns, a lot of secondary office buildings have been turned into student accommodation, into premier inns, into through permitted development, into flats, etc. So the supply has come down. And is not easily replaceable. So when I'm investing, and you know, I mean, I'm I might be wrong, but if you're asking for you know tips, what do I look for? I look for occupier markets that are outperforming investment markets. And I saw that in industrial in 2010. I saw it in Dutch offices in 2013, 14. I saw it in, sorry, I said we, M7. I saw it in retail warehousing 18 months ago. And I'm definitely seeing it in regional office, UK and Europe now. And you know it, it is it's becoming tougher and tougher to create value in real estate because there's more and more people wanting to invest, and there's more and more money. And so what I'm trying to look for, or M7 is trying to look for, well, there's lots of things we'll do. We'll continue to invest in industrial for the long term with our partners at Oxford. We'll continue to invest in retail warehousing, doing all the things we'll do. But in our value add business, certainly I look at regional office and go, that's an interesting play. Yeah. And I will end that particular point by just saying, you know, maybe in 18 months time, there'll be something else. But what we're always trying to do is to say, is find that arbitrage between an operating or a mm. occupier market that outperforms an investment market.
0: And I mean, thinking just just you know, just as we, as we draw things to a close, you're talking about human contact and talking about disruption. You've always been a big advocate of technology and innovation, hmm. um, you know, through, you know, Coyote, IPSX that- Can you know, I talk about
1: uh, IPSX?
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Or I pay for sex, as my wife inadvertently called it. She heard me on a conference call talking about IPSX, stormed into my story and said, why are you paying for sex? And I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. And by the way, now that I've told you that it's called I pay for sex, it's very difficult to get that out of your, out of your mind. Yes, it's um, difficult. It's, by the way, nothing to do with that. So the International Property Securities Exchange, as I now call it, just to stop any confusion, that has the capacity to change the world. I, I kid you not you know, unitization is coming in a massive way. You know, unitization of everything. From, I mean, there are now, you know, as you probably know, NFTs that can be unitized. There are grandmasters that are unitized, cars that are being unitized. The idea of unit unitized investment, which basically is all a share is, is coming. And commercial real estate, in fact, not just commercial real estate, real estate generally. Here's a little pop fact for According to CBRE, what is the total value of the world's real estate markets to date, give or take, to the nearest 10 trillion? Well, Carlos, Um 200? 330, apparently. I, I've never added this up. I'm taking CBRE's word for it. 330 trillion US dollars. Do you know the total value of all the world's stock markets currently?
0: That's um, probably a fifth of that. Mm, no.
1: Uh, but I mean, that's, that's a pretty good guess. I would have said that too, actually. It's about 130 trillion. So about, but real absolutely. estate is two and a half times bigger than all of the world's equity markets
0: combined. I guess it depends what, what, uh, what Elon Musk has been tweeting that day, I suppose. No, no, it?
1: even so Elon Musk, <laughs> important as he is, you know, a trillion is still a lot of money, just, <laughs> no, just, just, just so we're clear. Trillion is, a, is, a, is, I think the expression is a shit ton of money. So if you look at real estate <laughs> as a sector, and yet we don't have a dedicated real estate property exchange. We, mm-hmm. we, we we just don't. And so whilst some real estate is traded in the public markets, I think it's substantially less than two percent, you've got huge capacity for growth. And the reality is, if I said to you, look, in your ISA, you've got a bit of money in your ISA, you know you can invest in some of the REITs, but some perform, some don't. It's you know you're exposed to management teams. If you could invest directly into real estate, fixed cost management contracts, mm-hmm. and you can invest mailbox and in Birmingham, obviously, which we listed. but you know you, let's say, the Shard was listed. You can invest directly in the Shard or in a hundred hall or the Metropolitan Life Building in New York. How exciting would you find that as a concept?
0: You need to be pretty informed, though, wouldn't you? Because as a, as a consumer, and this has been one of the problems. Hold oh, on a
1: second. I, I'm going to stop you there and say, do you invest in stock shares?
0: Well, I mean, even
1: if you don't, lots of people well, do. Yeah, right? obviously I do, Okay, yeah, yeah. so you have to be pretty informed on that, right?
0: Yeah. Why would this be any different? I guess because if I buy shares in in a you know company that makes widgets or i'm buying into a uh, a life science business or i'm buying shares in apple or, or shell I, you know there's a whole level of diversity but why
1: why wouldn't that due diligence okay but let's just take let's take that point so you can decide which buildings you know you well, I, I mean
0: it comes back to what, what we started about data doesn't it i can you know i can look at i i you know if i'm buying have you
1: ever looked at the mailbox website um, not recently, no. No, no, but go and have a look. See how much data is there. Mm. There is a ton of data that you can make very informed decisions on whether you should buy into the mailbox or not. But imagine a world, just for a second, where the mailbox isn't one of any two things listed there, a world where there are a 1,000 buildings there, Okay, which, by the way, is very much our ambition. Mm. A 1,000 buildings there, so you as an individual can say, right, I want to build a property portfolio of 20 buildings. Now, at the moment, unless you've got three or 400 million quid, you can't do that. You're not invited. No. And unless you're very wealthy, you don't get invited to the private equity funds either. Or you have a family office. or So you're left with the open-ended funds, which, let's be honest, have not been a big success. And some of the REITs, which have not been a big success either. So imagine a world here where you have 1,000, 2,000 buildings, where you could go and buy shares in 20 of them, 10,000 pounds each, let's say, or 5,000 pounds each. You can build a highly diversified, highly income-producing, investment real estate investment portfolio for a small sum of money relatively speaking which before you'd have put into british land or you would have put into an open-ended fund and you have the flexibility because it's a market-made exchange mm. electronic pricing and here's the thing right the
0: frictional cost of real estate trading is nuts and, and this is i mean it's a good point because it, it's, and, and and this is something that you, you think is going to happen more of a widespread scale do you think that the disintermediation uh, of of investors advisors all of the layers of of, of fund management is, is that going to happen are we going to see more gps going and doing deals with with operating partners and, and just re- eschewing funds altogether? no no
1: no because what's no, no i think funds will continue to exist uh, but you know again a fund could list half the buildings that it has in its funds on IPSX own 30% of the, equ- of the equity. Funds will exist that will own parts of buildings. Because the issue, you know, the reason that IPSX is so important now, A is it's going to give opportunity to people to participate in markets. So it's going to democratize the market. But the other thing, you know, and I, people have not been paying attention to this. When you buy real estate, your round-trip cost is 10%. 5.2% stamp duty, agency fees, legal fees, environmental fees, structural fees, yada, yeah. yada, yada. And then can you come out again, you get another set of fees. So your round trip is 10%. So if you buy a building for a 1,000 pounds, it's cost you 1,100. If you're 60% geared, you've just given away 25% of your equity. It's what we euphemistically call the J-curve in the real estate industry. Now, before, markets have just gone up, and there's been way to capital, and we've just accepted that's the cost of the trade, Right. Now, as yields have compressed and real returns are becoming less, because by definition, if in forget when inflation falls again, interest rates remain low, you know, the old 15% is probably 10, the old tens 5, et cetera, et cetera. You can't afford this 10% frictional costing to the same degree that you could. It will take you three or four years to get out of that J curve. Yeah. At which point, if you can trade units in assets rather than the buildings themselves, where none of those costs exist... And you're fully liquid. Mm. How appealing does that suddenly become? You know, and tokenization is coming. You know, I mean, blockchain will become the matter of record for everything over mm. the next five, ten, is, fifteen years. Is that
0: is tokenization? Do you think one of the solutions to the climate crisis? Thinking about, I mean, people have been talking about climate-driven QE. I am years, so
1: underqualified. You've asked me a question that I I, I can't even begin to answer. But what I will do, if you ever invite me back, is if you ever invite me back and ask me the question again, I'll provide an answer to it. I mean, that is, I have no idea.
0: And what what are some of the things that that you see coming up the road? I mean, you're quite passionate about the intervention of, of, of different technologies and the emergence of greater automation. And how much of a risk is that, do you think?
1: I think automation is a massive risk to society. And, you know, I mean, we could do a whole different podcast on why that's the case, but you know, we're seeing this temporary wage inflation at the moment, which you know, broadly I would be supportive of. The issue that we've got is, unfortunately, is businesses are immoral. I mean, all businesses are immoral. I mean, not through anybody's fault. It's just that you know, businesses are literally vassals for profit. Mm. And if we're going to continue to have wage inflation, then businesses will look at it the same way as they looked at oil and in 2012 and what we did you know what happened there is you know pe- people made use of oil much more efficient either through engines or finding clean energy so demand fell and if wage inflation stops businesses being profitable businesses will invest in automation far faster than they're intending and if they do that automation will take hold much quicker and we will find ourselves with you know not 1.2 million job vacancies which we have today but suddenly a great big chunk of unemployment created by or automation. Now, this would be less worrying if we had a government that had any ability at all and any plan. And again, we can do a totally different podcast on this particular government and its mm. lack of planning. But one of the things that society needs to do is plan for automation. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, but society needs to plan for it. And we need to be realistic about the challenges that the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to hold. And one of them is going to be how automation fits into society. Not into business, but into society
0: and 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 finally then what what impact do you see that having on on real estate is that going to mean on on the industry i mean is is that going to mean replacing lots of surveyors and deal makers with laptops is that going to mean, I mean it, fundamentally it, 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 moving it could do. i mean if I was clever enough to answer some of the very good questions you've
1: asked me, I would be probably giving this I would have sent a plane and we'd be having this podcast on the back of a yacht somewhere. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to some of those questions. I'm trying to find out. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm on a journey of discovery, trying to understand, you know, what the impact of technology is going to be over the next 10, or 15 years. I will tell you this with certainty, though, OK? If, you know, I know in 2005, I couldn't have foreseen the impact technology would have had over the last 15 years. And the technological parabolic curve is just going higher and higher and higher the impact on technology on real estate on society on the economy is going to be huge it's why you know rightly or wrongly Tesla is valued as a trillion dollar company i am certainly not clever enough to tell you how this where this is going to go but you know as an investor as a if i am a business leader as an entrepreneur it is all the things that i claim or would like to be it's one of the things that i'm trying to understand myself and trying to learn about you know but will technology impact everything, the answer says, oh, God, yes, hugely. Exactly how, if I can work out how, and say, I'm, I'm, I'll make a lot of money. I'm, I can't answer those questions yet, other than to say, it's going to change everything. And, you know, business leaders, all of society needs to pay attention, and we need to start thinking about how we are going to integrate technology into our society, because it's going to play a bigger and bigger role. Mm
0: look forward to uh putting together that podcast automation thank you so much richard croft that's a really fascinating chat we've covered loads of ground and and you know appreciate you know some of these there's some of the raw honesty really it's it's uh, yeah it's it's quite fresh quite refreshing to have that that level of honesty looking back on on what you know what so far has been an amazing career i'm still there's another 30 years to go so we'll absolutely uh have to catch up in the near future and and, and very best of uh, of luck with you know with the Next phase of, of everything you're doing. Um, so thank you very much to everyone for listening. You can subscribe if you've not already subscribed via Spotify, via Apple, via SoundCloud, via all sorts of podcast platforms. Just search propcast. Uh, thank you again, Richard Croft from M7. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder of Blackstock Consulting. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye.